This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Reactions to the Paris Climate Agreement are all over the map. Unexpectedly, our correspondent Paul Beckwith wonders if it isn't a tipping point in human affairs. After extreme weather events all over the planet, they keep happening. Lindsay Allen from RAN isn't so sure. Before we talk with them, I want you to hear an extraordinary teleconference hosted by former Earthbeat radio host Daphne Weisham. We hear how West Coast cities are leading us out of the fossil age, even as they struggle with constant demand for more pipelines, more ports. Oh, and by the way, one California mayor reports thousands are living under a toxic cloud, while fracking has poisoned the water system used for one quarter of North America's produce. Mmm, good food. I'm Alex Smith, with all that and more this week on Radio EcoShock. Just when things look bleak for the climate, we discover city mayors are way ahead of national leaders. Daphne Washam leads this story. She's the former host of the syndicated radio program Earthbeat and now director of climate and energy program at the Center for Sustainable Economy from Portland, Oregon. Daphne, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thanks. It's great to be here. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from some West Coast progressive cities on a conference call you did. But first, tell us about the movement against any new infrastructure for fossil fuels. Well, you know, one of the things that I've found since moving back out to the Pacific Northwest is that there's a very strong grassroots movement against some 27 fossil fuel export proposals that are on the books right now all across the Pacific Northwest that represent by some studies five times the carbon content of the Keystone XL pipeline annually. And so there's this rich grassroots resistance to all of these proposals. However, it's very time-consuming and exhausting because in some cases, as soon as you've defeated one proposal, another one comes down the pike. And in some cases, in the same towns and the same cities, over and over again, we have to rally the troops and get them out there to testify and so on. And one thing that we decided that we really needed um, in place was a more, not a defensive, an offensive posture. And so when Portland got a proposal for a propane export terminal, we rallied again. We got hundreds of people turning out at the hearing saying, no, we don't want this propane export terminal to be bringing mile-long trains down from Alberta. Uh, filled with highly explosive propane to export to China. We don't want this in our town. And we succeeded in getting our mayor to turn around. And we decided after we got our mayor uh, to reverse his initial support for this that we really wanted to see once and for all no new fossil fuel infrastructure in the city of Portland. After all, it's one of the greenest cities in the country. It's uh, the first to put in place the Climate Action Plan, the first to not only meet but exceed the Kyoto Protocol targets got the highest bike ridership in the country, on and on. It just was a bad idea for Portland to have to be facing any new fossil fuel infrastructure projects. So, again, we pushed our mayor and pushed the city council, and on November 12th, we got in place the strongest fossil fuel infrastructure policy that we know of in the country. Um, Perhaps only Vancouver, B.C. is, is close to ours. 
and they're in Canada, obviously. But shortly thereafter, I decided, you know, if it's good for Portland, it should be good for all these other cities. So uh, after this passed, we developed a website, nonewffi.org, as in no new fossil fuel in- infrastructure. I managed to get uh, endorsements from groups all over the country, including Indigenous Environmental Network, Winona Duke of Honor the Earth, Bill McKibben and others. And then we started pushing for mayors to uh, endorse Mayor Hale's resolution and commit to doing similar, putting in place similar restrictions on fossil fuel infrastructure in their jurisdiction. And I was stunned at how quickly we managed to get, last count, I think there were 11 mayors and over 30 elected officials on the West Coast in a matter of days signed on to endorse this uh, resolution. So now comes the tough work of making this binding law, which we, we will be doing over the coming year, and then taking the lessons that we learned from that practice to um, begin to share lessons learned with other cities up and down the West Coast and ideally all over, all over North America. Is there more news you want to share following your teleconference with civic leaders? The biggest, the biggest surprise to me was the mayor of Richmond, California, which is home to Chevron, the Chevron refinery that has sickened and killed, actually, uh, I think, several of my family members who used to work in the region died of cancer as a result of that refinery. Quite a few people in the community, they have a very high cancer rate, and um, there's been a lot of great organizing in Richmond. And so it's very exciting that we now have the mayor of Richmond, California, on board this resolution pledging no new fossil fuel infrastructure and a just transition for the workers there. Daphne, we need to know the websites where listeners can find out more about stopping the expansion of fossil fuels and finding better energy alternatives. Yes, and that's another thing that's it's so exciting. You can listen to the audio from our press conference, and one of the people at our press conference was a mayor from Southern California who has put in place the first, uh, what he calls a net zero carbon city in the country, where they're developing renewable, so much solar power that they're actually exporting it. He also happens to be the lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit taking on this gigantic methane leak that's happening right now in, in uh, Southern California that represents 25% of all of California's methane emissions. So he's a very powerful speaker, and you can listen to him and Winona and Bill McKibben and others at org. We need your support. We'd love to get people endorsing our petition, organizations, businesses, and others. We need everybody on board this movement. Good. And what's the website for the Center for Sustainable Economy? It's just sustainable-economy.org, but you can also find it. We link to it at uh, org. We'll get that and scene.org, all of those links in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Daphne, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Radio Ecoshock. Let's hear some local leaders on this conference call against more fossil fuel infrastructure. Leave it in the ground. We begin with Vancouver, Canada going fossil free. We'll hear from Winona LaDuke on her people's pipeline battle. And get ready for some incredible news about poisoned waters in California, where one quarter of America's produce comes from, and better news, the first net zero city in the world. Here's Daphne Weisham introducing Andrea Reimer. Andrea Reimer was appointed as Vancouver, B.C.'s first permanent deputy mayor after serving six years as chair of the Standing Committee on Planning, Transportation, and the Environment. She's been the council lead on the greenest 
City Action Plan since its inception in 2009, and in 2015 spearheaded the city's efforts to be the first major city in the Americas to commit to 100% renewable energy. Andrea Reimer, welcome to our conference call. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here today on behalf of our Mayor, Gregor Robertson. So I was going to speak just a bit to um, some of the work that Vancouver has been doing. I know that we don't share the same national government, but we definitely share the same coastline and a lot of the same challenges that Portland does, the same geography essentially, a lot of the same geoclimatic um, and very similar cultures and histories that have informed the work that we're doing today. So it's it's exciting to be aligned with them on this initiative. So Vancouver did pass um, the first renewable energy strategy of any major city in the Americas back in November 2015, so just about a month ago. Um, it commits the city of Vancouver to 100% uh, renewable energy for electricity, heating, cooling, and transportation, so all fossil fuel burning would be banned as a result of replacement by renewable energy. So that renewable energy strategy uh, builds on a pretty significant body of work we'd already been undertaking through our Green a City Action Plan. So Green a City was a commitment that we made in 2009 when we were first elected to be the greenest city in the world by the year 2020. At the time, we didn't even show up on the rankings. They don't rank every city in the world. So all we know is we were lower than the last ranked city, uh, which was about number 500. Um, now, just last year, we were awarded fourth greenest city on Earth, so that's a pretty significant movement, and it's been a huge effort for us, not just on um, climate, but on water, on waste, on food, on green jobs, um, and just transition strategy. So that plan, when it was established, also set long-term targets uh, that looked out to 2050, and one of those was an end to fossil fuels, and that's given us the mandate since 2009 to vigorously oppose any new fossil fuel infrastructure that is uh, proposed to be in the city of Vancouver, although generally they tend to take the form of things coming through the city of Vancouver, um, seeking the ocean to, to go out somewhere in the world. Sort of an irony in Canada that you have this massive tar sands um, up in Alberta, and, and the last thing it would have to pass through to get out to the ocean and to market is through the city of Vancouver, which has this green aspiration. So we've been fighting uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is a proposal to increase tar sand export, uh, tar sand bitumen exports through uh, the West Coast ports by a sevenfold increase. Um, in 2012, out of frustration with having to every single time a new proposal came forward, pass a motion, we passed a, an omnibus that we would oppose all new fossil fuel infrastructure. In 2013, we banned coal terminals, so it's taken completely out of our zoning and development bylaw. It's impossible to build one in the city of Vancouver. Um, and then in 2015, you know, it, when you spend a lot of time fighting against things, it, it builds a lot of support to fight for something. And that's where the uh, renewable energy strategy came in, that we really felt that rather than having to keep going talking about what we didn't want in the city, we really needed to get people mobilized, especially in the COP21 year, behind the vision of the future that they imagined was possible, what Bill was talking about. So we passed that in early 2015. Our staff have been working with the community and experts and people around the world um, to build the strategy, which was formally adopted in November. It um, It's bold and ambitious, but completely doable. It is one of the first First motions I've ever passed at council where I thought, you know, maybe maybe this is actually impossible. It turns out it's not at all. It's 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 about 
saying, yes, this is where we're going, and then putting all of our human innovation and talent into figuring out how we are going to get there. When we passed our original motion at the beginning of the year, we were one of less than a dozen cities in the world that had passed um, policy to that effect. Now we are one of hundreds of cities, and we expect that that growth will continue exponentially because none of us can do this alone. So exciting times to be partnering with other cities on this. Um, really excited to hear what, what the other cities on the call are doing. Thank you, Andrea. I wanted to announce a very exciting new endorser of our ban on new fossil fuel infrastructure which is the mayor of Richmond, California, home of the uh, enormous Chevron oil refinery, Mayor Tom Butt, signed on from Paris, France, just last night. We also got the endorsement of Mayor Kitty Piercy of Eugene. So the long list of endorsers is up on our website, which is nonewffi.org. You can sign on there and also see all of the elected officials that have signed on. Next up is Mayor Rex Paris. He is the mayor of Lancaster, California, and he's an attorney representing the thousands of families in Porter Ranch, California, who are being forced to live under a cloud of methane, benzene, and hydrosulfide gases as a result of an injection well blowout that is being called the BP of the West Coast. Some environmental groups claim that this one leak represents 25% of California's methane emissions annually, and it still remains uncapped. As mayor of Lancaster, California, he enacted the first ordinance requiring solar panels on all new construction. Lancaster will be the first net zero city in the world. Currently, all city-operated buildings in school are powered by solar. Thanks for joining us, Mayor Perry. Okay. First, let me talk to you about the city of Lancaster, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what's going on in Porter Ranch. About eight years ago, the city of Lancaster made the decision to become the first net zero city in the country, if not the world. We will reach that goal within the next eight months. What that means is we will be producing more energy from the sun than we use in the entire city. We were the first city to pass an ordinance that requires solar panels on every house, and what was most interesting about that is there was almost no pushback from it, and it was embraced by all of the citizens from what we can tell. And as a result of it, we're now the builders in this city are now building net zero houses using batteries from BYD, uh, which is a company in China. The thing we will be announcing in the next few months is a 500 megawatt storage facility for that BYD from China will be building in our city. What's significant about that is that means there really isn't much need for more infrastructure. We can we now have the ability to store the alternative energy, which has always been the problem uh, as to replacing fossil fuels with alternative energy, and it's and it looks like we've we've conquered that now. The problem is, is is obviously this requires a huge shift in people's business models that are going to be resisted and are being resisted. The necessity of dealing with the infrastructure that the fossil fuel industry is forcing upon us is becoming more and more apparent in California. Before the Porter Ranch blowout of the injection wells, what we discovered is that the water supply in the San Joaquin Valley that feeds 25% of our nation's food supply, grown food supply, comes from the San Joaquin Valley. And the aquifers appear to be poisoned. 
the cherry trees started to die. Now the almond trees are dying. And the, the testing shows that we're getting, in some cases, benzene levels of a thousand times what's acceptable. All kinds of hydrocarbon poisons are in there. And that's because the oil industry has been injecting directly into the drinking water of California. The, the thing we should start recognizing is this industry has no responsibility whatsoever. Oh, they, they have captive agencies regulating them, and as a result, the impact they're having on the climate, the, the country, and the citizens is beyond comprehension. The Porter, Porter Ranch situation is an example of that. They used a 50-year-old 50, a 50 well. It was drilled in 1954 to pump oil, and they used that as an injection well to put to store natural gas under high pressures. The inevitable happened at Blue, and now we have thousands of families living under this cloud with very little we can do about it. The, we're trying to relocate them. The, the gas company is resisting. This is Semper Energies that's responsible for this. And we're going to have more and more of these situations develop as they take more and more risks in, in finding energy. I guess that pretty well sums it up. That was Rex Paris, mayor of Lancaster, California, the first net zero city, on a conference call with Daphne Weisham against new fossil fuel infrastructure. Winona LaDuke is a former vice presidential candidate and uh, executive director of Honor the Earth. I'm going to turn it over to you now, Winona. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to call in. I'm from northern Minnesota, the White Earth Reservation, and we're in a situation where we are facing three big new oil pipelines that they propose to put across our wild rice beds. Those pipelines will be carrying fracked oil from the Bakken and tar sands oil. You know, we are people that live this whole world. This is our whole world up here, and these pipelines are not necessary. Uh, oil demand has diminished, and in the face of the stranded assets and liabilities, they will be for future generations. We're saying no new fossil fuel pipelines in the north. We're saying no new fossil fuel pipelines. And, you know, to be honest, probably like everyone else on this, in this conference call, I'm not opposed to infrastructure. We're a country that has a D, D-plus in infrastructure. We have crumbling bridges. We have gas mains that explode. We don't have many of our reservations don't even have basic infrastructure. So I'm all for infrastructure. But what we'd like is infrastructure, which is for people, not for oil companies, and not a liability to all of us. So we're looking at the Enbridge pipeline, not the Trans-Canada. These are the Enbridge lines, and their goal is to get to Superior, the furthest inland port. And the people that are in between them are all the Ojibwe reservations. Can I, this is Andrea Reimer from Vancouver. Yeah. Can I um, just add something to the earlier point? Sure. I mean, there's, there's obviously a very compelling environmental case to stop burning fossil fuels, very compelling social case that Winona laid out. Um, there's, I would argue, a moral case um, by virtue of the fact that someone gave us the future that is today. We have a responsibility to give a future to the next generation. Um, but there's also an extremely compelling economic case to it. So if I was mobile and I know that there's no future for fossil fuels on the planet, there's global treaty being signed that will continue to constrain and limit the burning of those fossil fuels if there's no future for the thing your economy depends on, there's no future for your economy. So just at a straight economic level, um, I would be looking at that and thinking about what is the next thing we are going to be doing as a city. Vancouver, um, with the Greenest City Action Plan, our economy has grown by leaps and bounds, almost 
too fast, actually, to be socially sustainable. Um, we will be the most, by far, the most fastest growing economy in Canada over this next year because of the over-reliance of fossil fuels in other parts of the country. And even at that, continue to meet and exceed the goals that we set on green. So I think if you're charged with thinking about the future of your community, not just from a weather or climate standpoint, um, but from how the economy is going to work, you should be thinking about that transition right now. This is Rex again from Lancaster. Okay, On a smaller scale, we, we could echo exactly what Vancouver is saying. We, we thought this was going to be an economic uh, detriment to us, and we found just the opposite. Our people are paying less electric, electricity charges. We're bringing in more industry that's clean industry. It's been nothing but pluses. And, and I think, I don't know what Vancouver expected, but we were expecting the opposite, and we're just pleasantly surprised. There you go. National leaders are way behind the cities. Isn't that partly because most people know the weather and the climate aren't right? And local elections are harder for big corporations to buy? My thanks to Daphne Weisham of the Centre for Sustainable Economy. Be sure and check out and support the movement to stop more fossil fuel pipelines, ports and development at the website nonewffi.org. Find a link to the full audio of this teleconference with more guests at nonewffi.org and in my show blog at ecoshock.info. Mainstream media tells you the Paris Climate Summit was a deal to save the ages. For a different take, we've reached regular Radio Ecoshock contributor Paul Beckwith. He's the scientist studying and teaching climate science in Canada at the University of Ottawa. Paul was just in Paris, in the streets, and in meeting halls, but now he's in Norway. Hello, Paul. Hi, Alex. Well, later I'm going to ask you why Norway, but my big question for now is, what are your impressions and takeaways from the COP21 climate talks in Paris, December 2015? I'm very encouraged with what I saw in Paris. It doesn't go far enough. We know that. But I think it really does get the ball rolling, something which the previous 20 COP did not do. And getting the ball rolling in Paris, you know, being a major you know, European city, there's a lot of stuff going on before behind the scenes with diplomats, with negotiators, with policymakers in, in different countries. There seems to be a different atmosphere. There's, there was some sense of the importance and the urgency. And I think it's because people's wallets all over the planet are, being, are starting to be affected a lot by climate change. It's becoming very important for economies and countries financially to take climate change seriously. You know, I, I don't think that the politicians and policymakers, most of them are quite to speed on, you know, Arctic sea ice decline and the risk of methane coming up. And But they are tying the extreme weather events that we're seeing around the world to climate change. So they're recognizing that, hey, we've only had a degree of warming in the planet and we're already getting these severe events. And you have people like in the Stern report saying, that a certain percentage of global GDP will be required to fight climate change. And the longer we leave it, the worse it becomes. And him saying that he thinks he underestimated the rate at which climate change was occurring and things like that. 
I was very encouraged by all of this. But James Hansen was not. He says this voluntary approach has never worked before, so why would it work now? I just wonder, it took us, Paul, about 25 years to take climate change seriously, and I don't see tools built into this agreement to actually do very much. Am I wrong on that? Well, James Hansen would be unhappy with anything less than a uh, global fee on carbon, uh, a fee and dividend approach to carbon on, on a global basis. So if the countries agreed, okay, we'll put a fee on carbon of, say, you know, start off at $10 or $20, $30 a tonne, and increase it uh, every few years after reevaluation and have a dividend being returned back to the people, which is what the group Citizens Climate Lobby, you know, many people in the public have joined this group, and this is what they've been pushing. And I think most economists that actually study the problem recognize that's the best thing to do. So we haven't seen that yet. But the ball has started to roll. Like People in finance are talking about climate change being a serious issue. If listeners haven't seen the speech a couple of days before the end of COP by John Kerry talking about how the military is recognizing the risks and climate change is the most important, the most severe issue that the world has to face. And you have, of course, the Pope saying the same thing. You have other people saying the same thing, scientists saying the same thing. So I think probably my expectations of what could happen in Paris are a lot lower than Hansen's. Like I say, I think Hansen is seeing black and white, you know, no carbon fee and dividend, therefore failure of the conference. What I'm seeing is the global ball is starting to roll down the hill and it will only pick up speed. Like to give you an idea, the EU preparation for the Paris conference It involved 90,000 diplomats in numerous countries in the EU and also outside the EU. So there's tremendous um, diplomatic momentum that will occur after Paris. I mean, Paris is not the be-all and end-all. It just got the talks going and it got some sort of agreement. And it's like we may look back. You never know when there's a tipping point when it happens generally. It's only looking in the rearview mirror that you see that. And so what's happening coming up this year is climate change is definitely on the agenda for all 2016 uh, multilateral events because we have the World Economic Forum coming up in 2016. We have a G7 meeting in 2016. We have a G20 meeting and there's follow-up meetings to Paris and the UN is holding numerous meetings and There's energy uh, strategy and diplomacy and bilateral partnerships with China, Latin America, and the U.S. There's all these things going on, and all of these things will now go on given that Paris has happened and that agreements have started. So I think that we'll see the ball rolling faster and faster, especially if we are undergoing abrupt climate change, which I've been saying that we have for quite a while then I think we'll start seeing these abrupt changes in in human response. I've talked about the human tipping point. One cannot say that it's occurred yet, but I think maybe three, four, five years down the road, we'll be able to say that it did occur if it does in fact occur. So, you know, Paris is only only the beginning. It's not the end. But we're certainly in a much better position globally on policy and so on than we were three weeks ago, say, before the Paris meeting, I I would argue. 
So is this agreement giant and complex, or are there layers in it that we should understand? Is there anything you'd like to talk about what was actually agreed on? The Conference of Parties, it involves all the parties of the world, and the parties are the different countries. So there were, what, 196 or something. There were, you know, maybe four or five or something like that that weren't involved, you know, small countries or for whatever reason, but they had these intended nationally determined contributions. So this is what they say they're trying to achieve. But see, I think what happens is, I mean, what I understand is, you know, if a country opts out of what they're saying they can do, if they're not making an honest effort to try it, then I think that country will will be hurt, like their global standing will be hurt. They'll kind of be ridiculed by the other countries. Their economies will suffer. They're developing countries, for example. There's tremendous money that will be going into climate finance um, before 2020. Like there's, I, I, you know, I saw the number 100 billion, and then I, and then, I mean, in Kerry's speech, he was talking about 80 billion from the U.S. or something, and, and he said he was going to, that was going to be doubled. I mean, look, how many other cops have had the Mark Carneys of the world? debating with uh, Michael Bloomberg's of the world about climate and investment and with Tom Steyer sitting in the front row and, you know, and Bill Gates and multi-billionaires, uh, Musk and, and other people, you know, attending the conference, taking a big role, attending the sessions on investment and climate change, you know, each going up and saying things. Watch the facial expressions, watch what the the reaction, you know, how people are speaking like Kerry and Gates and Musk and others when they're up. And if you can read people, it seems that these people are really starting to get concerned about the rapid changes that are happening because the changes that we're observing in the climate system are invariably happening much faster with much more serious implications than the IPCC uh, documents would tend to show. I don't know for sure. I mean, I haven't been to all of the COPs. I mean, I went to Lima last year, and Paris is my second one. And judging from the meetings that were occurring in Paris, it was like night and day compared to Lima. And also, you know, Lima being in Peru, sure. I mean, if we had exactly the same this the year it wasn't in Paris. It was in, say, I mean, next year it's in Morocco. It was in, you know, a different country, but it's in the heart of Europe. The city got on board. The whole city of Paris got on board. You know, you ride on their buses, which are super green. They have all these green initiatives. There were over 100 mayors from major cities across the world that were at Paris. There were side events on climate change affecting the global food supply. There were side events on climate change and health and they were it was packed with medical doctors from top medical institutions and countries around the world talking about how it's very underestimated the impacts of climate change on on humans not just on diseases and things but also on mental stability mental health you know well-being things like that there was a separate session on climate change in the aviation industry and there, there's a whole group that's been around for a while, you know, just looking at how to reduce emissions in aviation. And, you know, they say things like 20 years ago when a flight would use so much carbon and we're using half as much now 20 years later. And one of the things is bigger planes 
you know, carrying more people, you know, which is a more efficient way to do it. Same thing with the shipping industry. So the shipping industry, you know, a lot of the ships are dirty, polluting. Um, and you can see the, the trails from the ships uh, for hours and hours or days after the ship's gone by. You know, these two industries were left out. I mean, they weren't those emissions weren't associated with any country before, but now they're being incorporated. So it seems that people are getting a lot more serious about dealing with the issue. And I, I think I think there's only one reason for that, and 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 that is because because we're undergoing abrupt climate change, and the climate system is going to hell, and we're seeing all of the you know threats to food supply. We're seeing droughts places, we're seeing more and more cities succumbing to the climate casino, the negative aspects of the climate casino being flooded out or something. There's an enormous uh, economic impact on infrastructure, and it's happening now. It's not happening 20 years or 50 years or 100 years in the future. It's not happening with our grandkids. It's happening right now. You're listening to EcoShock Radio. For the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Welcome back to Radio EcoShock. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. We're talking with Canadian climate scientist Paul Beckwith about the COP21 climate summit in Paris. Paul, you mentioned Bill Gates, and I know you as a member of the Arctic Methane Emergency Group feel that we should take some technological action to save what's left of the ice system in the Arctic. How did you take Bill Gates' announcement, and how does that work into what you may be up to in Norway? There's no question. The the COP is all about reducing emissions. So it's how quickly do we need to do it? The idea is stay below the target of two degrees or one and a half degrees. Although I think that is the wrong target. I think the target should be more, okay, we've had one degree already and we have a big temperature imbalance between the equator and the Arctic and that's throwing off the jet streams and it's throwing off the ocean current and it's causing the extreme weather events. So those things need to be considered more and and is there a way to correct that imbalance? So I was talking about a three-legged bar stool and Zeroing emissions, if we want to stay below two, we did, without doing anything else in, in terms of CDR, carbon dioxide removal or solar radiation management, if we want to stay under two degrees, we have to zero emissions by 2050. That was kind of the conclusion. If we want to stay below one and a half degrees, we have to zero emissions by 2030. But, you know, is that physically possible to do? Probably not, in which case we have to aim at zeroing emissions as much as possible, but we also, that's only one leg of the stool. You need three legs on a bar stool for stability. So the second leg is CDR, carbon dioxide removal. 400 ppm is too high. We're threatening the food chain in the ocean. The ocean acidification is going to take out phytoplankton, which will mess up the entire food chain. And we threaten, uh, you know, mass extinction in the ocean, which would then go to land if we continue to operate even at the level that we're at. So 350 now is all founded on the premise of getting down to 350. James Hansen says we need to get down to 350. When I talked to James Hansen, and Jason Box and other people and said, well, look, okay, we zero emissions. We're not going down to 350. 
we need carbon dioxide removal. And James Hansen came back and said, well, he thinks that the natural sinks on the earth would be large enough to actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere if we zeroed emissions. I mean, I happen not to agree with that. And Jason Box was also saying similar things. So these people, they just don't want to say that word, CDR. They don't want to say that dreaded geoengineering word. But that's the, the second leg of the stool. And the third leg is the solar radiation management because we risk losing sea ice by 2020. If we lose sea ice by 2020 and the snow covers also in the spring is also dropping at an even faster rate than the sea ice, and they're both trending down almost exponentially to zero. And if you just see a trend based on 30 years of data down to zero in four or five more years, I mean, if there's a turnaround, great. If there's not, we lose sea ice. And if we lose sea ice, then, you know, it would be for maybe a week or two the first year, and then it would extend to several months within a few years, and it would extend to year-round. Then we have huge increases in Greenland uh, ice melt. We have a complete change in the Arctic ecosystem. We have uh, methane emissions coming up from the eastern Siberian Arctic Shelf in the Kara Sea. Um, and there was a recent paper showing mounds. These pingo, these methane craters in Siberia have an analogous uh, form under the ocean. And what we're seeing is big mounds appearing in the Kara Sea, these massive mounds, which are probably pressure from the methane hydrate thawing underneath, pushing them up. So we're playing with uh, fire here. So this is what AMEG has been saying at least four years. So we need to try to cool the Arctic to ensure that the carbon stays in place. And we know how to do this. And we're looking at non-intrusive ways like marine cloud brightening, but that takes time to develop. We're looking at uh, simple, quick and dirty fixes, which is taking some of the sulfur from a power plant, which views sulfur into the lower atmosphere and putting that sulfur into the upper atmosphere over the Arctic in the summer to cool the region to ensure that we don't lose sea ice and snow cover and that the methane stays in place. So the stool, I'm arguing... um, that all these aspects of the stool are required, no matter how unpalatable people think this may be, because I would argue you cannot be against CDR or against SRM. If you're going to be against those, you need to convince people that if we do nothing, that we're not going to get tremendous increases in extreme weather events, that we're not that the sea ice is going to stay and we're, we have time to do all of these other things, because you, you can't just be against something if you don't talk about, you need to talk about the pros and cons. So if we don't do some of these things I'm saying we need to do, then we're going to not enjoy the planet that we end up having. Paul Beckwith, tell us what you're up to in Norway. Okay, so in Norway, I'm co-founding a uh, startup company. The name is uh, Gaia Engineering. And we've been working uh, for quite a while up to now. I haven't met the people that I'm co-founding this with, apart from over social media, over Skype calls, etc. But we have some ideas that we think we can use to transition the skills of people in Norway. There's there's 300,000 people in Norway directly in the oil industry. The government has taken a big chunk of oil revenue and has built up the the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is a trillion dollars 
it's interesting because Canada has taken all the flack for the oil sands and tar sands. Everybody in the world knows about the dirty oil from Canada. And Norway, you know, they're getting its conventional oil from the rigs off sea, and they, they have had a much bigger impact probably than the tar sands because they're pulling way more oil out. But because Norway is yet doing a lot of other things that are green and a lot of European countries are on it with, uh, they're really up to speed with, uh, energy efficiency and things like that. They have been for years because fuel prices have been much higher in Europe. But this oil industry, they recognize that it is not going to last forever. And with, you know, they recognize carbon taxes are coming. They have to transition out. So we're, we want to use that skill set in order to do some CDR, develop some CDR methods and some SRM methods to make a bigger impact and get the ball rolling to, you know, reduce emissions faster than they would be reduced just by, you know, we flashing them is fine. We also need to reduce them. So we're looking at uh, projects that will, that will do that. We did, I did a presentation a few nights ago and it was recorded, but the live feed was no good because the Wi-Fi was no good, but we recorded two hours. I was introduced by a Green Party member. Green Party is really big in Norway. And then I talked for about 45 minutes and then the team for Gaia Engineering was introduced and then there was question and answers from the crowd. So we had a two hour session and we will be releasing that um, recording along with the PowerPoint slides that I gave at that presentation. We'll be releasing that on the Gaia Engineering uh, website and Twitter feeds and stuff like that very, very soon. And then that will give people a much better idea of some of the things that I'm involved with in Norway. Well, great. I think it is the future that some of the money accumulated by the oil industry will have to be used to transition the climate away from their own product, but also that will put the oil companies in a new business and a cleaner business, we hope. That's my opinion. So Paul Beckwith, he's a Canadian climate scientist and super communicator. You can get a lot of what Paul teaches his students at the University of Ottawa from his YouTube videos. Find links to Paul's channel and his busy Facebook page in my show blog at ecoshock.info or launch from Paul's new webpage at paulbeckwith.net. Thank you again, Paul. Always a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you very much, Alex. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Let's get a quick Paris review from Lindsay Allen, the Executive Director of the Rainforest Action Network, or RAND. Lindsay, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. It's good to be back. Well, okay. Let's start with the positives in the Paris Agreement. What good was done there? I mean, it's a big deal anytime you have 195 countries come to consensus on anything. So I think that's one of the big positive takeaways from Paris. If you read the text that's now available that goes through the details of the Paris talks, it does have mention, and I would even say placeholders for a lot of the critical components of what we wanted to see in the Paris deal. One of the pieces that is really critical to put in perspective is that 195 teams of diplomats did not come together and just sign on to a consensus agreement around dealing with the threat of climate change because they're good people or because their governments are progressive or anything else. We're seeing this action on behalf of governments from all around the world as a result of people-powered campaigns that are being driven by communities that are feeling climate impacts touching down on them every single day. And so that is what we really see as the takeaway message is that our movement continues to gain momentum and 
the role of diplomats in the Paris talks was one example of us starting to show our strength, but it also means that we need to double down and make sure that, A, the commitments that were brought in the Paris Agreement to the Paris talks are really followed through on, and it's critical that we drive far beyond, because as I'm sure you're about to ask, there are a lot of failings of the Paris Agreement. I do want to get to that, but one other positive I see is that they finally stopped talking about 2 degrees C as something safe and and proclaimed by God or something, and mentioned that 1.5 degrees might be more reasonable. What do you think about that? Yes, so they didn't actually completely stop talking about 2 degrees, but they did really open the door for a 1.5 degree conversation. And as we all know, the difference between stabilizing the catastrophic climate change closer to 1.5 versus 2 is really critical because it's talking about if we stabilize closer to 1.5, we hope to avoid, based on climate modeling, many of the worst negative feedback loops, which means where we start to get this tipping point, something bad happens, like the Arctic ice sheet starts melting, and then methane, for instance, is released into the atmosphere, and that's a greenhouse gas about 20 times more potent than carbon. So that it is critical to have a 1.5 conversation. It's important to note that 1.5 is not the only marker in the text. So two degrees is still in the text. In most of the language, it still refers to two, although it leaves this qualifier that that does say we need to get closer to 1.5. And the reality is the emission reduction commitments that countries brought and that are kind of available as some of the annexes to the agreement don't get us anywhere near two, let alone 1.5. So that's still a tremendous gap that we're seeing. But you're right that 1.5 is a critical part of the conversation we need to be having. Okay, so what are some of the other failings of that climate agreement in Paris in December 2015? So where to start? There a couple of key points. One is we know that indigenous rights was not included in binding ways in the agreement. And in general, the agreement does not have as much teeth compared to the, the sentiment or the placeholder language that's there. So the exclusion of indigenous rights is really critical when we think about, for instance, tropical forests, which is one of the places where we really focus our work. We know that the best way to protect tropical forests is to recognize the solutions that are being driven by indigenous communities. And that's the reason why we really still have intact tropical forests. So indigenous rights is not recognized as a core element of what the solution to addressing catastrophic climate change is. That's a big failing. We also know there are huge questions that still remain around who pays and who is responsible for the emissions that have already been released into the atmosphere. So we know that developed nations have emitted the majority of emissions that have put us into the kind of dire situation that we're currently in. And so there's a fair share question. Are these countries, these developed nations, really willing to pay their fair share? And there's nothing in the text that says we will, as developed nations, pay disproportionately more to ensure the developing nations that want to follow through on their national commitments to emission reductions actually have the resources to do so. So that's still a key piece in there. It's related to another element of the conversation that folks might have heard about, which is really around this loss and damage conversation. So imagine the small island nations having to deal with sea level rise or developing nations uh, like the Philippines, for instance, having to deal with an increased frequency and severity of massive weather events 
who is responsible and who helps to compensate for the losses that are being felt by countries that are most heavily impacted by climate change, which are often the least resourced nations. So the loss and damage section of the talks does not explicitly say this is how compensation, in a sense, is going to be paid and how we're going to take accountability for the losses that these countries are facing. And the U.S. was one of the key stakeholders in arguing to kind of keep some of the the stronger elements of the policy out of the text because, for instance, it could have been argued that this would be a mechanism for holding major emitting industries and specifically corporations, often U.S.-based corporations, responsible for global emissions. So that's really a gap. And then there was an element that's a little bit of a mixed bag, which is around forests. Forests are really included in a strong way in the deal in terms of recognizing ecosystem value. A lot of folks fought hard to get in that text so that forests aren't just considered these kind of landscapes that have a number of carbon sticks that we need to protect just purely because of the carbon equation. The challenge is that the mechanism that is likely to be used to protect forests is a market-based mechanism. And this kind of takes us back to one of the bigger picture points, and it's not a surprise that coming out of the Paris talk, there are so many vested interests that are really committed to trying to only do as much as required. And so this sense of we we don't really want to change business as usual. We want to kind of get this monkey off our back, so let's see what the least we can do is. That is not the level of ambition that we need to be seeing from President Obama or any of the other leaders that were there for the climate talks. What we need to be seeing is a drastic shift away from a carbonized economy. We need to be keeping fossil fuels on the ground. We need to be keeping forest standing. And we need to be learning to take leadership from communities that are at the forefront of feeling the impacts of climate change and have been developing solutions but do not have the same level of access and power and resources to kind of make these these top-down plays that we sometimes see from diplomats proposing these types of things. So that's really our opportunity coming out of the talks, is to say, it was great. We all came to agreement in Paris. There are some beautiful words on paper, and there's some placeholders for real action. But as each of us returns to all of our different nations all, all around the world, the momentum that got our leaders into the position to come to consensus in Paris needs to be the momentum that we use to continue to leverage much deeper changes to business as usual to our entire kind of carbonized economy so that we see the solutions that are commiserate with the scale of the challenges we face with climate change. Wow. Well, it took, you know, more than 20 years of these COP meetings for these diplomats to come to the point to recognize that global warming is serious and eventually we'll have to get out of the carbon age, and that eventually extends past 2050, as far as I can figure out. Lindsay Allen, as we wrap up, I wish you could tell us a couple of stories from Paris of the action outside the official negotiations. Did the voice of the people get a chance despite fears of terrorism? Yes, there was, it was really interesting to see the way that dissent was cracked down on in Paris, because I think it made it so much more clear that no matter what the conditions were, you cannot silence this movement, because there are, there is too much at stake, you know, even the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people 
who would be displaced and affected by catastrophic climate change. So that was the pulse that you could feel, whether you were inside the credentialed blue zone in the UN negotiations, where almost 500 people on the last Wednesday of the talks risked having their badges revoked and their organizations were, you know, kicked out, to walk through the corridors where the diplomats were making decisions, to say equity is a core issue, to say the inclusion of rights is critical, to say 1.5 needs to be our target, to say countries aren't doing enough, to say don't get lost in the weeds and don't argue and expect this tit-for-tat when the climate is too critical of an issue for the entire globe. You know, so you see this beautiful, vibrant, vocal movement willing to risk their badges all the way to the streets where you see this red line action that despite the protests being banned, the French officials actually changed their position because they knew there was no way to stop the organizing that was going on to say these are the red lines that this climate agreement cannot cross. So it, it was this beautiful, vibrant, hard to articulate, but you can feel that this was the heartbeat of our movement, and it could not be silenced because of fears of terrorism. And this is all about the world we want to create, which is not a world based on fear. It's a world based on our vision and equity and being real about understanding our connection with the entire planet. And that was very much a vibrant part of all of the movement moments that happened in Paris. We have been listening to Lindsay Allen, just back from the Paris Climate Talks. And Lindsay is the leader of the Rainforest Action Network. And you can keep up with that activism at RAN.org. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you, Alex. This is Radio Equalshock with your host, Alex Smith. Are you wondering how to cope with climate worry and maybe some other threats? There is a new online seminar series coming up with some guests you might want to hear. Let's get the details from our Radio Ecoshock friend, Carolyn Baker. Carolyn, welcome, and who's coming to the party? Well, who's coming to the party, this wonderful party called Living Your Passion and Purpose in the Face of Humanity's Greatest Challenge, are people such as Andrew Harvey, who is the founder of the Institute for Sacred Activism, Canadian Stephen Jenkinson, who's the author of Die Wise and the film Grief Walker, Derek Jensen, who many folks know as the founder of Deep Green Resistance, myself, uh, Linda Bazell, who's an eco-psychologist in Southern California, Dar Jamal, who's a famous climate writer for the Truthout website, Jenea Donaldson, the producer of Peak Moment TV, Dr. Mick Collins from the UK, who wrote a wonderful book called The Unselfish Spirit, and Becca Martinson, wife of Chris Martinson, the financial online blogger. Becca is a therapist and a life coach. And these very heart-opening sessions are offered live, and they're recorded for later viewing. Uh, they're each going to be two hours, and then after we feature the recorded interview by our speaker... Uh, we're going to have that person come back on live, and we're going to have discussion, question and answer, and uh, a lot of exercises that we can do together to, I think, create a nice online community with each other. Okay, and the focus of it will be what? The focus of it will be our feelings and our responses to catastrophic climate change, to the global crisis in general, as opposed to more facts, more information, more science. This is going to be 
a very intimate and compelling kind of venue. It's going to focus on inner explanation and what we want to do together in the face of humanity's greatest threat. So this all comes by computer. People sign up and then they, how does it work? Well, you go to my website, carolynbaker.net, and right there in the middle of the page is the flyer and a place for you to click to register. You can go there and register in a flash, and you're going to be able to get these recordings after you register and after they are uh, actually aired on the show and you'll be able to refer to them in the future. And I think this is going to be a great opportunity to create, as I said, an online community that goes deeper and goes beyond uh, just touching base with each other on Facebook. Right. We watched what happened in Paris. We know that's not going to solve the global climate crisis. And when we start looking at our kids and looking around the other species, this stuff really touches us deep, and we don't really have much advice on what to do with those feelings. That's absolutely right, and what we're trying to do here in this online webinar is to help us connect more deeply with ourselves, with each other, and with the earth. And I think it's going to be a unique kind of experience. Um, I don't know anything like it that's going on online in relation to this particular topic, so um, we want everyone to join us for this very, very exciting and groundbreaking event. So if somebody has a deep question they've been dying to ask, is there a way they're going to get that into this? Yes, absolutely. We're going to have lots of uh, interaction. There'll be chat. There'll be live questions. Everyone will be able to have their voice and ask and make comments as we go along. So in that respect, it's not just a, a, an experience where you're sitting and listening, but you are actually interacting with the speaker and with other participants. And you mentioned if people have to work or they live in a wildly different time zone, they can still get this. How do they do right. that? Oh, absolutely. If you miss a session or, you know, you're in New Zealand and, you know, it's the middle of the night for you, not to worry because you're going to have access to the recording later on. Okay, one last shot. What is the website where people go if they want to look into this and maybe sign up for it? My website, carolynbaker.net. That's carolyn with a Y, www.carolynbaker.net. Well, good. I wanted listeners to hear about this because I haven't heard of any assembly of that kind of crew, that kind of caliber, all in one place talking. So I think this could be a really worthwhile event. I'll add a link in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Thank you, Alex. If you have a story idea or thoughts on something you've heard, contact us, radio at ecoshock.org. That's radio at ecoshock.org. You can listen to this program again on SoundCloud after Wednesday and find all the links to guests and topics in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Like the Fossil Age, we are out of time. Thank you for listening. Be sure and join us next week on Radio EcoShock. <laughs>